You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead on The Exchange, an hour until the Fed's latest decision on policy. And this should be a historic one. They are widely expected to announce tapering as the pandemic winds down. But the real question is whether they have to move up their timeline for hiking interest rates as demand overwhelms supply in the economy. We're going to get the very latest. But first to the markets, trading in a tight range ahead of the Fed. Let's get over to Dom Chu with the numbers. Dom? It seems to be the MO of the markets, especially on big Fed days, whenever there's a decision that they they go into this waiting, holding pattern type situation. We are seeing that today as well, although the Dow has kind of drifted a little bit lower than it was earlier this morning. Down about one-third of 1%, 116 points to the downside, 35.936 the last trade there. 46.24 for the S&P, down about one-tenth of 1%. And the Nasdaq composite pacing gains only up about one-tenth of 1%, 14 points, 15,664 the last trade there. One place that we did see record highs besides the Nasdaq is the small cap index, the Russell 2000. This ETF tracks it as well. We'll put a little gold star by it here because it did hit a record high today. And as we can see here, it's trying to kind of get out of this channel that we've seen for quite some time now for that small cap index. So again, if there's a breakout there, could be good for the better part of the market there. Those small caps up 1% right now. And then take a look at the consumer-oriented names. We've got some better-than-expected jobs data out this morning ahead of the big jobs report coming out on Friday. Consumer names being helped off by some good earnings reports out of the Michael Kors, formerly known as that company, uh, Capri Holdings. But Tapestry, Gap, Ralph Lauren, Under Armour, PVH, all among the consumer and apparel-type names that are doing very well in trading today. You can see all up between 4 and 5% some of the biggest gainers in the S&P 500. And then we'll end with the Allbirds IPO, a huge move higher. It's up 68% right now. This company priced its IPO at $15 a share. It's currently 25 and change. It implies a value of just around, call it $3.5 billion total, depending on certain assumptions you make about the shares outstanding. Still, Allbirds, it opened up 2121 Got his highs around 26 and change. We'll see if it stays that way. Kel, back over to you. Very interesting, Dom. We'll have more on that in a moment. Thank you very much. We're also watching some big moves in bond yields as we wait for the Fed's decision. After tanking to start the week, a bit of a rebound today. And it comes after a huge beat, a historic one, really, on the ISM Services Report. Rick Santelli with the latest this hour. Rick? Yes, boy, what a U-turn the markets had. Let's look at that ISM Kelly just referenced. The service sector ISM began in July of 97, which this chart starts at. And as you can clearly see, 66.7, zoom, zoom, zoom. The highest level really before that was the first month at 62. How did the markets react? Just look at an intraday of five-year yields. At 10 o'clock Eastern, Gemini blasted off. Yes, straight up on those yields down on price, and while the intermediate and short maturities like five-year were selling off, pushing yields up, the 30-year bond has yet, has yet to see its yield trade unchanged or higher. It's now sitting down two basis points at 1.94%. And this really underscores the dynamic of how the markets are doing one thing and Jay Powell and company are giving lip service to another thing. They're talking about the taper. And the market wants to talk about actual rate liftoff. And if you look at the spread between 30s and 5s year to date, you could really see how the market's been having a bit of a hissy fit, trying to get the attention of the Fed to pay more attention to how inflation and various aspects of policy are affecting markets. Kelly. 
Back to you. Great description, Rick. Thank you very much, Rick Santelli. Well, the Fed today is expected to announce tapering, taking the first step in paring down its $120 billion monthly bond purchases. It's a historic shift, but is it enough? Or is more aggressive tightening of policy needed? Joining me now are Stephen Whiting, the chief investment strategist at City Global Wealth, Michael Schumacher, who's head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo, and Julia Coronado, who is founder of Macro Policy Perspectives. Welcome to everybody. Michael, I'll start with you because I think this is a headline of sorts that you think the markets are pricing in too many rate hikes too quickly. Why? Yeah, we do, Kelly. It's interesting. And one thing I expect Jay Powell to talk about quite a bit this afternoon is trying to differentiate between tapering and rate hikes. And he said this previously, that there are different conditions. They really address different things. We think the market's overreacted a bit. So currently the market's priced for a bit more than two rate hikes next year. We think that's way too much. Maybe one, more likely none. So Powell's going to hit that pretty hard this afternoon. And Julia, I think you might concur with that. So maybe give us the fundamental reason for people who say, you know, how can that possibly be? What would you tell them? Well, I think that the response has been to some global developments on commodity prices and some pull forward of other central banks. But I think what we're seeing is a lot of more of the same supply chain inflation that we had. We are going to see supply chain conditions improve gradually and steadily in coming months. That's what we're hearing out of earnings reports. If the Fed hikes, it's going to be because the labor market is doing better and the recovery is more is stronger and more sustainable. And in that case, I think they'll hike later when that evidence is more conclusive and maybe more steadily than the market is pricing. Stephen Whiting, even as I look through your thoughts here, I'm going, wait a minute, you think investors might also be too hawkish. Is that right? Does everybody here think that, the you know, if anything, a dovish surprise is, is what the Fed wants to give us? I don't think you've got a bull bear debate here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, look, I think we're not sure what Chairman Powell's uh, real goal here is today, whether to prepare markets for any real tightening to go any further than they have. Um, or to back them off, or to really allow markets to stay steady in terms of their expectations. But as Mike said earlier, you know we're now pricing in five rate hikes by the end of 2023. That's a lot of confidence in the outlook. And if you go back to what's going on in the economy and inflation, uh, core services price inflation, that services X energy, are up, is up 2.9% year to year. That's an acceleration. Wages, compensation, strengthening. But that's not where the inflation is. We had core goods prices up 7.3% over the last year. That's fiscal stimulus uh, heading into goods uh, and goods purchases. Uh, and these COVID distortions with everyone buying uh, consumer electronics and autos to stay off of uh, public transportation. And those are distortions still. And that's the larger part of headline inflation. So it's very possible that central banks particularly the Fed, will be tightening into a decelerating inflation environment in the coming couple of years. And that's, a, I think, a pretty good argument for them not to shock us uh, with, you know, historical normal tightening cycles. So, Michael Schumacher, some would argue that, you know, if bond yields rise from here, the Fed is de facto easing policy, that they kind of have to play catch up because otherwise their policy rate is too low relative to what's going on in the market. Now, I don't know if we're quite there yet. I mean, the 10 year is still around, you know, in the neighborhood of one and a half percent. But what do you think is going to happen with rates? I mean, if we start heading up towards two percent, is that a signal that the Fed needs to start raising them? 
And we think there, Kelly, you'll see rates go up a little bit. So in terms of long-term rates, just to map out a path for the balance of this year, up through the course of November, down in December. The reason for that is the debt ceiling becomes an issue again, all sorts of other messiness in Washington. But still, when all is said and done for 2021, we think the 10-year is 175, 180, so modestly higher than today. And I'd say by the midpoint of next year, maybe it's low twos. But to your point, is this really a big signal for the Fed? Probably not. Yields are still low in real yields. So if you want to think about prospective economic returns, very negative, which is super unusual. So right. by most measures, Fed policy is still really loose, even if the 10-year were to go up to 175 or 2%. But isn't that the point, Michael? So for those who say, well, wait a minute, you know, real yields, depending on what measure you want to use, are at least negative 1%. Isn't that way too easy for the strength of the economy that we're seeing? Again, more in NGDP terms than GDP terms because of those price pressures. price pressures. But why should we have negative 1% rates at this point of the recovery? It's a tremendous question. Policy is super easy. So I guess another way to frame it is should the Fed have tapered before now, probably, as it kept the punch bowl of the party too long, quite possibly. But it's a really fine line because the Fed doesn't want to spook the equity market, doesn't want to spook the high yield market, probably wants yields to go up a little bit. And oh, by the way, the U.S. government's been borrowing money hand over fist for the last couple of years. So a big increase in yields is not really desirable there either. So it's a a super difficult, very nuanced position for the Fed. A little bit higher in yield is good. A lot higher is bad. And Julia, to sort of switch gears a little bit, you know, Fed Chair Powell himself will be, you know, everything about the way that he gives this message and speaks uh, today will be watched because there's also questions about his renomination. And I thought it was interesting that Libby Cantrell over at PIMCO thought the results from the elections last night might actually lean Biden to go with more of a status quo pick. In other words, much of the market has been saying he's going to be under pressure to move in a more progressive direction for the Fed. And she says, well, maybe after the past 24 hours, he'll just renominate Powell. I mean, the status quo has always been an argument that favors his renomination. He's done a great job. He's not sort of in in uh, opposition to the Biden agenda in terms of his his policy orientation. And, and really, Biden has two excellent choices in Chair Powell or Governor Brainerd's. So it really is more of a decision about the whole slate of candidates, who slots into which position, and the prospects for getting them appointed and into their seats through the political process. But um, I think it's it's quite sensible that, that uh, President Biden would renominate Chair Powell. I think it's the most likely scenario and that Governor Brainerd will become one of the vice chairs, probably vice chair of supervision. And I think today that just, you know, is just another factor arguing for steady as she goes. I think another factor that we haven't touched on is a lot of central banks around the globe are starting to pull back mm-hmm. uh, monetary policy and the fiscal tailwinds are starting to ease. You want to probably let some of this settle out and figure out how these lags factor into the data and the markets before slamming on the brakes. I, I, I think that there's a, a, a time dimension here that they want to kind of go steady as she goes. They've done that with taper. The whole reaction function is go a little later than you're supposed to go. And that's what they've done. It's boring. We're all getting bored. We want to rush to the next thing. The Fed is going to go steady as she goes. And I think the nomination question just reinforces that that sure. And sort of finally, to translate this into in, in terms for investors here, Michael, I know you think you've written uh, 
I should say I know you've written, uh, you expect four to seven year Treasury yields to rise for a few days after the Fed's announcement tomorrow. And Stephen, could you just leave investors with a sense of how to position either sort of in the very, very near term or in the wake of what we're going to hear from the Fed on tapering? So in the near term, markets trade off of these expectations. Is the Fed behind the curve? Is it getting ahead of the curve? Um, If yields can decline, if the Fed is viewed hawkishly, you'll probably see um, a lot of growth stocks. Um, improve, relatively speaking, some defensives, uh, and vice versa with some of the cyclicals and commodities. But that's all short term. If you think about where we are in the cycle, and you just heard it, you know, we are going and rolling off a tremendous amount of fiscal stimulus. That was a major source of this inflation. For the coming year, I think you're going to see just lower returns uh, and some of the rebound cyclical plays, you know, the things that have been really exciting for the, the last few months, maybe the next few months, these aren't going to be a, such a great return environment. I think that we're going to see that real, uh, at the core of the economy, that income-generating assets, some of the worst performers, things like staples and healthcare, um, are going to be steady, she goes, solid investments for the coming year. All right, staples and healthcare. This is like the, the status quo boring you know, outcome here. Chair Powell, <laughs> staples and healthcare. Uh, guys, thank you all very, very much. We'll see if we get some more fireworks here at about 45 minutes time. Stephen Whiting, Michael Schumacher, and Julia Coronado. Speaking of news, we actually have a news alert on Square's Cash App right now. Kate Rooney here with that story. What's going on, Kate? Hey, Kelly. Square is opening up its payments app to teenagers. Anyone over the age of 13 will now be able to access the Cash App for digital banking or to send money. They do need authorization, though, from a parent or a guardian who will be the legal owners of these accounts. Teens get a debit card as part of this. They can link that to Apple Pay and access Direct deposit, no stock or crypto trading, though. Square really playing up the cool factor of this launch, especially with the debit cards. They're letting teens customize the cards that link to the Cash App. And Square's marketing strategies with this and historically have really been more in line with social media companies than with banks. It launched a clothing line, for example, last year. And they've partnered with rappers and musicians for Cash App giveaways. And Kelly, this is a way for Square to harness that younger generation of users and that spending power. That's key there. It's another way to get them into the digital banking fold. That generation really tends to rely on cash and it could grow Square's platform as well. Also a way to differentiate from PayPal's Venmo, which is reportedly working on a similar product. And separately, Square shareholders today are voting on that $29 billion deal to buy Afterpay. The company reports earnings tomorrow after the bell. Kelly. And given the backlash against some social media apps for kids, they've got a tricky ground to navigate here. Kate, thank you very much. Kate Absolutely, Rooney. yeah. Still ahead, Allbirds taking flight today. The shares are soaring 70% now in their debut after pricing at the high end of the range. Up next, we'll talk about the retailer's plan to attract investors looking for sustainable and eco-friendly companies. Plus, we're tackling chips, content, and e-commerce in today's edition of Earnings Exchange, where we'll bring you the action, the story, and the trade on three names set to report tonight. And there's like 160 of them. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC.
Welcome back, everybody. Strong performance for Allbirds today. Can barely keep up. It's up 78% right now. It just keeps rising. Even I'm checking, like, am I reading the right line? Uh, yeah, I am. Its ticker is Bird, and it went it priced at 15, went public at 2121. That's the top number you see there. And it's currently trading just under $27 a share. It's the latest direct-to-consumer company to go public, joining the likes of Warby Parker and Solo Brands, the outdoor goods retailer. They've yet to turn a profit and hit some snags when they filed for an IPO at the end of August after focusing on ESG issues. So how environmentally friendly is the business model and how much do investors prioritize that? Joining us to discuss is Axios business editor Dan Primack. Dan, welcome. Let's start just with the price action. How would you describe it? Uh, soaring, right? I mean, it, it's going like they priced above where they had expected to just in the IPO. And as you said, it, it just keeps going up. I checked right before we came on and I, I was pretty stunned by the number as well. What does it tell you? Because IPOs have been a little soggier lately. I don't, I don't know quite how I would describe it. You know, we've seen, obviously, a big shakeout in the SPAC space. And maybe it just goes to show that, you know, a really jazzy, new, exciting product that people are still really passionate about can do it. Or is it because it has such attractive ESG scores? So I think it's both. The ESG certainly plays a role. You know, uh, the CEO was on uh, with uh, you guys earlier this morning, I think, on Squawk Box, and he talked about how a lot of the buyers of the IPO itself were definitely buying in part because of the ESG, because it really lets them put really a consumer product in an ESG bucket, which they can't always do, particularly a sneaker brand. It, it's not a normal thing. You know, but beyond that, I think a lot of people are looking at Warby Parker because this is a very similar company in terms of model, right? It's a, it's a little bit younger, but, you know, originally a DTC company that then has started recently expanding into its own branded stores. And that's really becoming a major driver of its growth. You know, I'm looking, it's Rivian. That's the, the name, Dan. While you're here, I don't know if you saw this yesterday, but a portion of Rivian's upcoming IPO is reportedly going to be sold or given directly to users of SoFi. Really interesting move here. Now, we know, obviously, Robinhood gave a portion of its uh, shares to Robinhood users, but that's maybe a little bit different story. Should we expect the opportunity for retail investors to get in at the IPO price to become more common? And would it be via a lot of these new fintech apps? I mean, the fintech apps make the most sense, right? As you said, I mean, Robinhood was a little bit more direct because it was Robinhood going public and Robinhood has its own investing platform. But but it makes sense. I mean, to, to a certain extent, I, I've been surprised over the years that more consumer brands haven't done this because it's kind of a loyalty program, right? You know, for example, I, I thought Spotify would do more of this, right? Like if, if there's a couple of things you can choose between a couple of consumer products that are fairly similar, in theory, if you own stock in one, maybe it makes it a little bit stickier for you. Absolutely. And, you know, I also wonder why more people haven't done it, because we've seen this massive interest between the meme stocks, the retail trading and all the rest of it. In it seems unfair, again, to not allow retail participation this way. Usually it goes to either accredited investors or, you know, sort of the wealthier, those who are who are more connected, insiders, big institutions and that kind of thing. What would it mean for the IPO market if, if this became more common? And I, I guess the reason why I'm thinking about it with Allbirds today is it's one of the rare cases where if you bought it at the open, you'd still be higher. Most of the time, unfortunately, all the pop comes from before it actually really hits the public markets. I mean, today you'd be higher. I mean, the question for all birds, obviously, is let's see where it you know, shakes out after two or three weeks, sure. let alone two or three months, you know, when insiders can start to sell. Because, you know, if you're all birds, you're very excited by this because we're talking about it on TV. It's giving them some publicity. But in the end, what they really want is long term investors who will be there for a year or two, not, you know, not whether or not the thing goes up or down. Look, there is definitely more of a democratization of the IPO market, although I will say, given what's happened in the stock markets this year and last year, I'm a little surprised we haven't seen more of it so far, particularly via things 
things like direct listings, which we've seen some of, yeah. but we haven't seen too many of. And I would imagine it'd be a huge differentiator for all these fintech platforms to be able to say, hey, if you use this, we might be able to get you in. I mean, what other options do people have if they wanted to access it? And I don't know what the interest of the, you know, the, the selling company, the Rivian or the Robinhood or whoever the next one might be. You know, if there's any reason they wouldn't want to give a couple percentage points of their offering directly to the retail base. Absolutely. I see no reason for them not to do it. And, you, and for the fintech apps, it would be huge. I mean, look at how much kind of big, you know, Wall Street level or bulge bracket wealth managers, look at how much they use that as a selling point, you know, with their millionaire and billionaire clients. There's no reason things like SoFi and to be honest, other, you know, mutual fund uh, kind of apps, et cetera, also can't use that for their lower end clients. Exactly. It'd be very interesting to see if, uh, if we do go that way. Dan, thanks for joining us today to talk all things IPO. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Dan Primack of Axios. Coming up, more than 10,000 workers at Deer will remain on strike after rejecting a contract proposal negotiated by their union for the second time in less than a month. The strike, now set to enter its third week, is the balance of power shifting to workers in this new economy. And we're just over 30 minutes away from the Federal Reserve's decision on interest rates, or really, decision on the taper today. We'll check in with an economist who says to watch for Powell's taper two-step this afternoon. We'll explain after this. Welcome back, everybody. Allbirds might be popping, but stocks broadly are sliding to session lows right now. The Dow down 140 points. S&P's down five. The Nasdaq clinging on to a 12-point gain right now. And again, the Fed coming up in 30 minutes. Here are some of the movers this hour. Zillow, what a problem that's been. Uh, It's down another 24% today. It's Back to about $66 a share. It's tumbling. So is Avis Budget Group. Remember, Avis uh, yesterday was up like 100%, down 18% today. Zillow, of course, had earnings last night. It said it's closing its home buying business and cutting 25% of its workforce. And Avis just taking a pause after its huge run-up when it was all the talk of forums in Reddit yesterday. J.P. Morgan dropping it two notches from buy to sell. Deutsche Bank cutting it uh, from hold to sell, both citing valuation. The shares have climbed for car 700% this year. Let's move to some meme stock. Bed Bath & Beyond higher after its new partnership with Kroger and its plans to launch a digital marketplace for third-party goods, adding 21% today. It also plans to complete a billion-dollar buyback plan two years ahead of schedule. A lot of talk about how much this one has hurt the shorts, just like with Carr yesterday. GameStop up 2.5% today. And AMC adding 2.3%. And here's Ferrari, uh, also up about 2.5% today after SockGen upgraded the stock to buy from hold, raised its price target by $50 to $290. It's currently around $255. So kind of just catching up with the price momentum there. The analyst says increased shipments year on year after sidestepping the global semi-shortage are a positive. Remember, uh, Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas on Monday called Ferrari his favorite EV stock You can read more about that story on CNBC.com slash pro. Now to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. The Pentagon says China is expanding its nuclear arsenal much faster than predicted. A new report says China could have 700 nuclear warheads within six years. That is roughly triple what it was estimated to have just last year. The Biden administration is taking action against Israeli hacking tool vendor NSO Group. The Commerce Department says the company sold spyware to foreign governments, who then used it to target government officials, journalists and others. The move restricts NSO exports to the United States. On the news, efforts to block the billions of robotexts that Americans receive on their phones every single year. That is tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. 
Meaningful paid family leave and medical leave will be included in the Democrats' spending package. That's according to the chair of the powerful Ways and Means Committee. He says the benefit will be means-tested and fully paid for. And some dramatic new video of new lava flows from the volcano in Spain's Canary Islands. The new surge is bad enough that residents near the volcano are being told to stay indoors. Ash is raining down so hard that school classes and flights have also been canceled. You are up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. Wow, and that's just been going on and on. Sue, thank you it very has. much, mm-hmm. Sue Herrera. Up next in earnings exchange, Qualcomm has delivered on earnings estimates every quarter for the past four years. Will that streak continue tonight? Roku has dropped nearly 25% in the past three months, but does see big after-hours gains, usually on their guidance. We'll see if that continues. And a different story for Etsy. Its shares are up 25% since August, but down 10% after its past two earnings releases. The key metrics to watch and how to position ahead of these reports are right after this. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Earnings Exchange, where we give you the action, the story, and the trade on three stocks reporting after the bell today. And it's going to be a busy afternoon. First up is Qualcomm. It's the second worst performer in the SMH ETF this year, down about 10%. Analysts are focused on management comments about the chip shortage, as well as competition in the semi-space, as tech giants like Apple work to bring more manufacturing in-house. Joining me with the key numbers, Josh Lipton is here, and Nancy Tangler is CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments, and she is here with our trades today. So welcome to both of you. Josh, let's start with a preview in what's been a very strong year for semis. They're not participating. Yeah, so Kelly, uh, as you pointed out, it has not been easy for Qualcomm bulls. You're heading into this print. The stock's down about 10% this year. It's about 20% off uh, its January high. Analysts are going to point out to a few different questions investors have. They want to know more about that outlook for smartphone shipments in the quarters ahead. How does that play out? Those broader uh, capacity constraints we talk about so much, and also supply challenges for some key uh, Qualcomm customers like Apple. Now, those are near-term challenges. I caught up with Cal Matt Ramsey. He says there are some longer-term questions you have to ask as well. We have these reports that Apple's thinking about making its own modem, bring that in-house internally. If Apple was to really do that, Matt says, then investors also have to think about what that would mean long-term for Qualcomm's business, Kelly. All right, Nancy, let's extend this to the trade. What do you do with Qualcomm? And, you know, maybe is there a different chip name? I know we've talked about a few in the past that, um, that you think should be the trade here. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Um, so Qualcomm is is an interesting holding if you bought it at around $80, $60 a share. At this level, with with some of the concerns that Josh mentioned and that we have as well, uh, I think I think you have to, to watch what happens, obviously, at the earnings call and see how the stock reacts. Historically, it's, it's popped on earnings for the most part. Um, we're concerned about not just the supply chain issues, but also the concentration in, in cell phone makers that they will bring uh, the, the business or the chip making business internally. And Apple's 15% of Qualcomm's revenues. So if the stock sells off and you want to own it and you think you want to have a position in it, this might be a good entry point. We own it in our slower growing, higher income strategy. Um, another name that we're looking at that's a competitor is Corvo. And I think that may be a better place to be in the next three to five years than Qualcomm will be because of the risks and um, the the 5G modem risk is also a concern. So I I think the company has a concentration risk problem that's going to be hard to solve. Josh, what would you add there? I mean, 
it's odd that on the one hand, Apple trades at such a high valuation. You know, it's great that there's such demand for their products. And on the other hand, Qualcomm is just not benefiting from that. So it, Apple's really interesting. So I, I mentioned I was talking to Cowan's Matt Ramsey about it, and I asked Matt, listen, by his math, if you think um, Qualcomm can do probably $10 in earnings in 2022, by Matt's math, Apple's about $3 of that. So it is uh, significant. Having said that, I should point out, Matt Ramsey um, tells his clients this is a buy. It's an outperform. It's attractively valued, he says. It's best in breed in its industry in terms of wireless technology. And listen, as the leading supplier of communication chips, Matt says, he thinks they are in the right place to capitalize as we make these transitions from 4G to 5G to 6G. Wow. Kelly. All right. And look at its PE, only 15. So really undervalued compared with the rest of its space and even the market. Josh, thank you. We appreciate it. Josh Lipton. Let's turn to Roku now, the perennial stay-at-home trade. Oh, maybe that's a bad thing these days. Uh, shares have seriously underperformed this year. They're down about 7%, and they've got this feud with Google over hosting YouTube TV on the platform that won't go away. Now it's also reportedly engaged in a similar fight with Amazon. Roku says it's an agnostic platform, but if it picks fights with the biggest tech players, can it maintain dominance in this space? Let's bring in Julia Borston. Julia, maybe these fights in some way recognize how important it's become. Well, look, I think there's so many underlying issues that are separate from these fights that are really about the shift of people from traditional linear TV into streaming and also of advertisers onto Roku's platform and Roku's role as a, as a company that can target ads onto connected TV. So just looking big picture at expectations, the company is expected to grow revenue by 51%. Earnings per shares are, earnings per share are expected to drop 33% from the year ago quarter. But one of the key numbers that analysts and investors are always focused on are those user numbers, how many people are accessing their Roku. The active account number is expected to be 56.7 million. So that is a key number to watch. But Kelly, one thing that Roku is exposed to, that is the supply chain. The question that I will be most focused on is maybe how much this company is impacted from those supply chain issues, not just for its devices, but also advertising. We've heard rumblings from different companies that they've seen advertisers pull back because of some of those issues. And the question wow. is how Roku is balancing both of those different pieces of its company. Absolutely. Again, it's down about one and a half percent today, still at a really high forward PE. Nancy, what would you do with this name? We own it, Kelly. Um, we've owned it for a long time. And I think the weakness is, is perhaps an opportunity. While I agree with what Julia said, advertising is the key to this, this particular name. They do have the best algorithm in terms of targeting ads. And they are expanding globally. So they just signed a deal in, in Brazil with TCL. Uh, that, that, that's important because last year, 100% of their revenue came uh, from the United States. So supply chain disruptions, um, weaker, potentially weaker advertising in the near term may in fact be the case, but that might actually be reflected in the, in the significant underperformance of the stock. So it's, it's had a really good record of surprising to the upside on a quarterly basis, and then the stock has responded accordingly. Um, if we, if it gets weaker, we're going to buy more because uh, this is a name that we want to be in for the next three to five years. They're a disruptor. The secular wow. narrative is an important one. All right. We'll leave it right there. Julia, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Julia Borson today. Finally, let's talk some Etsy. It's been having a stellar year, climbing 32%. And this is the first full quarter after its acquisition of Depop, the secondhand clothing marketplace. That was $1.6 billion it spent back in June. Etsy has a history of revenue beats. Can it keep the positive momentum going, especially as we get into the holidays? Let's ask Christina Partsinevelis. Christina, what should we be watching here? 
Well, let's start with the, the motto, keep, com- keep commerce human. And that is what one of the most popular U.S. e-commerce sites by monthly visits, this is according to Disful.com, uh, that is their motto. But when we're talking about keeping the momentum going, at its peak last year, the number of active users that they added, new buyers, was 12.8 million. Then at the beginning of this year, Q1, that dropped to 9.6 million. Then it dropped to 8 million. And analysts are expecting 8 million heading into this past quarter. So we are seeing a, de- uh, a growth trend that is decelerating. And that is slightly concerning. However, the gross merchandise sales, that's the number of, I guess, the the amount that we're buying per active user, was $47 or $46, I should say. And that's an increase compared to last year at $37. So people are on the site a little bit longer. They're spending a little bit more. So trends that we will be looking for is which merchandise product categories are growing? Are we going to see uh, vacation stuff, wedding stuff, the face masks or face masks in general were the most popular thing last year? So can this momentum continue as the pandemic starts to wean off and as we start to go out and maybe not buy as many things online? True. And the Ford PE is still 78. And Nancy, as she's describing that, I'm thinking about the other, you know, we talked about how much uh, some of the other state-at-home trades are down this year. And yet, Etsy's not been uh, prey to that. Amazon hasn't really either. What would you do with Etsy here? I I wait for earnings, obviously, if it sells off as it has in three out of the last four quarters. I I think it's an interesting time to take a look at the name. They are adding um, users. They are, as as Christina said, staying on the site longer, spending more. And the diversification or the diverse supply chain that this company has um, kind of mitigates some of the risk that other uh, retailers, if you will, um, would are, fall prey to. So I, I think it's a very interesting name for the long term. We don't own it. We're looking for an opportunity to get in. That they may give that to us this quarter. And watch for their uh, comments on early Christmas shopping, because if they're pulling forward sales, uh, that's something you want to be aware of. And Christina, a quick last word here. Again, I think maybe this is the company's opportunity to try to differentiate itself from a purely stay-at-home beneficiary or a pandemic beneficiary, like you said, with the masks, to a platform that was able to gain permanent share. Well, right. They have over 50 different categories for merchandise. I think the concern, though, is will there be any supply chain uh, problems? Because they sell other people's stuff. They have low inventory and most of the people are making the goods on there. So that to Kelly, to your point, that's a way that Etsy could stand up from the bunch because they're not you know, shipping products in from overseas and they're not getting stuck at ports. Instead, people are using their basements to make you those uh, those hats, those knit hats and maybe that uh, tiny coffee table made out of wood. <laughs> <laughs> for the tiny people that use it. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. <laughs> These are things I looked up, so it was just a top of mind. <laughs> no, it's always fun to see. Uh, that platform especially can never predict uh, where all the trends are. Christina Parts and Evelis, thank you very much. Nancy Tangler, great to have you here today. Uh, we'll see how just how busy an afternoon it is for you with these earnings after the bell. And we're about 20 minutes away now from the highly anticipated Fed rate decision. Up next, what the Fed needs to do to avoid a repeat of 2013's taper tantrum. And take a look at Allbirds. This priced at $15 last night, opened at $21, and is at almost $29 right now. That's nearly a doubling from that IPO price. We'll continue to watch Bird. And remember, you can catch the show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange Podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. The Fed rate decision is about 15 minutes away. Tapering is expected to be announced. And my next guest expects Jay Powell to strike a delicate balance. He's calling the taper two-step. For more, let's bring in Stephen Stanley. He's chief economist at Amherst Pierpont Securities. Great to have you, Stephen. What do you mean by that? Hey, Kelly. So I I think, you know, the Fed wants to separate 
tapering from rate hikes. And the way to do that, I think, is as you announce taper to reemphasize that just because we're starting to taper doesn't necessarily put us on a, a, a set time clock toward tightening. And so they'll, they'll try to create that distinction between the two steps. Now, there's always the fun of saying to you, what do you think is going to happen? And then what do you want to happen? <laughs> do you think they're behind the curve here? Would you like to see them uh, t- even talk about raising rates uh, sooner here? I do think they're behind the curve, um, and I think they're going to end up having to move faster than what they themselves seem to believe right now. Um, But they're going to want to be pretty judicious and move in a step-by-step fashion. It's going to take a while to unwind. You know, the the tapering process itself has probably got to be six to eight months, and then, you know, rate hikes after that. So uh, it's going to be a while before they start to hike rates. And in the meantime, the economy continues to roll along, and wage and price pressures appear to be building. That's why I think it's interesting to focus on kind of the negative 1% real rate that we're seeing if you just kind of go off 10-year tips. What does that economically tell you? If we ignore everything else going on in the economy, stimulus checks and, you know, tapering and supply chain and prices and core CPI rate, what does the simple fact that we are at a negative 1% real rate tell you is going on here? That the Fed is very, very easy and there's a tremendous amount of liquidity in the system. And I think that's the thing that is being overlooked a little bit right now. You know, everybody's talking about the supply chain issues, but there's also extraordinarily strong demand, which is being driven not only by the fiscal steps that you mentioned, but also by very easy monetary policy. And so, um, you know, the economy is very hot right now. And I think it's, it's not only because supply is constrained, but also because demand is very strong. And maybe the, a good illustration of that is the fact that nominal GDP grew 8% last quarter. You know, it was only 2% real, but I believe that leaves people with the impression that, that the economy is barely expanding, when in fact, that's double the pace that we saw for the entire previous expansion. What would, what would happen if the Fed raised rates by a, a point, let's say, just to be ridiculous? Um, what would happen to the markets and the economy, do you think? Well, look, I mean, that would be a shocker for the markets. And so there'd be a big adjustment in the financial markets. But I think just purely from an economic standpoint, setting aside those financial market um, effects, uh, you know, 1% funds rate would still be stimulative. It would just be less stimulative than before. So, um, you know, just because they're moving in the direction of normalizing monetary policy doesn't mean that policy immediately turns from being very easy to tight. Well, and again, I I know I'm asking you a lot of sort of to speculate on on what could or should happen here. But I, I do want to remind people that you basically think this will be the meeting that he really tries to delink the taper from tightening. I, I, yeah, I think that for the next month or two, at least, they're going to prob- that's probably going to be the dominant communications theme that we get from the Fed. Is it going to be trying to, to assuage any fears that they're about to, you know, just go willy nilly to the tight side? I think beyond that, probably as we get to early t- 2022, if the inflation numbers continue to to behave as they have over the last couple of months, then that's kind of going to overtake what the Fed would like to do, which is to be calm and soothing and step by step. And I think they're going to have to get themselves in a little bit of a hurry. Yeah, maybe soothing would sound a little different if that were the case. Absolutely. Stephen, thanks so much. It's great to have you. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Stephen Stanley. Still ahead, despite pay hikes and increased retirement benefits included in the second contract deal reached between Deere and the UAW, Employees rejected it. Deer shares are lower almost 5% again today. And we're going to explore the power of the worker and what that's going to mean for companies right after this.
Welcome back. For the second time in a month, Deere employees rejected a second contract proposal reached between the company and the United Auto Workers Union. Shares are falling almost 5% today after spiking on Monday on deal hopes. Seema Modi has been following the story for us and joins us with the latest. Seema, what happened? This was obviously unexpected. Yeah, absolutely unexpected, Kelly. This rejection came as a shock to not just John Deere, but the market both convinced on Monday that a wage hike twice as big as the original offer, better retirement benefits, would be enough to appease the 10,000 union workers that had been on strike since mid-October. But alas, 55% voting against Deere's sweetened offer. The company now relying on salaried employees to keep its plants running. Barclays, using geolocation data, found out that 10 of the 16 facilities that employ UAW workers across the Midwest are seeing lower activity. This as Deere continues discussions with the union, although comments made to CNBC suggest Deere is trying to play hardball, saying, quote, our paths forward are limited. Labor experts point to Deere's surging stock price over the past year. And CEO John May's 160% rise in total compensation over the course of the pandemic as to why workers should demand more at a time when the jobs market remains incredibly hot, especially in the industrial sector where a shortage of labor remains a big challenge and an infrastructure deal just around the corner is expected to result in higher orders for dirt-moving equipment, Kelly, which Deere, of course, specializes in. It just didn't expect this to be the place for the, the labor issues to explode, but why not? We've obviously not seen other companies from Mondelez to, I believe, Kellogg uh, experience worker strikes lately. So basically, in a nutshell, the workers are holding out for more how much more might Deere ultimately be willing to for? I mean, what other options do they have? Yeah, and that's the key question. Is this a defining moment? Does this represent a time where workers are really acknowledging that they're in the driver's seat, that they have leverage in this discussion? The second offer suggests they did, right? Because they got that 10% wage hike versus a 5% that they were initially offered, a ratification bonus of $8,500. So it was a better deal, but here they are saying, you know what, look at the profits that Deere is trying to make this year, around $6 billion dollars. We deserve more. Fascinating. Seema, thank you so much. Seema Modi with the very latest. As we mentioned, Deer shares under pressure today. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.